Turned off by religion and hypocrisy? Hate being preached to? Something missing in your life? You haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio. Avina Malkano, our Father King, Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth, Lord, would only be of you. Lord, whatever I've missed, you bring forth whatever is of the flesh, or that you would strike it. And I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. So last week we took a look. We t- looked at a lot of variations um, of interpretation of, in particular, the book of Revelation. So this week we're going to do something a little different. We're going to move forward and we're going to look at some context and content uh, related to the verses or the uh, scriptures I'm going to share. But first and foremost, we need to see, we need to see that Yochanan, John, how he received it and how did Yochanan received the revelation by the Holy Spirit, right? He received it in the Spirit. And of course, I often say, because it's important, that we need to see and perceive with spiritual eyes and ears and hearts. Because if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. We're not going to receive what God wants us to know. And this, not only for all Scripture, but is particularly true in the book of Revelation, especially since there's so many variations and interpretations of what people or over the ages have said it means. So we need to have discerning hearts based on the Holy Spirit and not just the writings of men or commentaries or those kinds of things. The Lord gave, gave it to Yochanan John. He gave it in a way that we could also receive it. Amen? Right? Blessed are the reader and hearers of the words of this prophecy, provided they obey the thing written in it, for the time is near. That's from Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. It's an interesting scripture, right? Provided they obey the things that are written in it, for the time is near. Well, that's important, don't you think? I think it's important. For the time is near. So, if the time was near 2,000 years ago or 1,800 years ago when the word was given here, um, how much closer are we to the time that's near? <laughs> I can't answer exactly what it means, but I sh- clearly we can say we're closer now than we were then. Can I get an amen? All right. That may be the only thing you agree with me today, right? So the book of Revelation, one of the things that we need to understand about it, Revelation is relevant to, to the past. We know that. There's some truth that it's relevant to the past, but it's also relevant to the future, and it's also re- relevant to the present, right? To the generations that are awaiting Yeshua's return. So we, as the past generation, we don't know about the future generations, the ones that are way ahead of us, we don't know how long you're going to have to wait. But we are in unity waiting, or have been waiting, for the return of the Messiah. Everybody's waiting for Yeshua to come back, right? Alright, good thing. So we live in the days of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In verse 28, I'm going to start with verse 28. After this, I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. I will show wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. At that time, whoever calls in the name of Adonai will be saved. So that's from Joel 2, chapter 28, verses 30 to 32. So Revelation, Joel is talking about Revelation. He's talking about what is being described in Revelation. And he's talking about even then, the sense of urgency and that who will be saved from all these things? Well, those that call in the name of the Lord will find eternal salvation. 
Um, not the ones that are thinking about it, not the ones that are rejecting it, not the ones that give lip service to it, but those, those that and what it means, what Joel means by calling on the name of the Lord is more than just saying, I know Jesus or I know Yeshua. Calling on the name of the Lord is, means you are living for the Lord, right? It's not, it's not just about what you say. Of course, we just read the scripture in James, it's about faith without actions is dead, right? And actions without faith is dead. So this is also that so that scripture supports uh, what Joel is saying, and what I'm trying to share here is that that it's 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 active, right? It's 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 a verb. There's action here, and that calling on the name of the Lord is not just acknowledging who Yeshua is. If that was true, then the demons could be saved. Anybody here think demons can be saved? They've already been judged. So if we just take all the scripture in context, it will help us understand what is and what isn't, and so. Clearly, in this, in, in Yoel, in, in this prophecy, this piece of prophecy, all the things that he says that are going to happen, we are experiencing some of that. Are we not? We are experiencing some of that. There's no difference to these things than what the book of Revelation is talking about. So the book of Joel has a lot to do with understanding the book of Revelation, at least in giving even more emphasis and clarity. I don't really see anything new in the book of Revelation. So we, if we read the book of Joel, which maybe isn't quite as intimidating, just think about Joel and then think about the book of Revelation together, that there's some parallels with the two. In Acts 2, 3-4 through 4, it says, Then they saw what looked like tongues of fire, which separated and came to rest on each of them. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. So we are talking about the book of Joel really is prophesying what's happening in the book of Acts. So I'm jumping around a little because so we can see the connection between the two. In Acts 2, when they all came into the upper room and, and, and the Lord pours out His Ruach HaKodesh, His Holy Spirit, that is what's going to give them to a, the ability to understand the Scriptures in particular. In particular, the book of Revelation. If Acts 2 doesn't happen, there's no way they're going to understand the book of Revelation. And that's the same for us. The same thing. We need to glean the same understanding as, as the believers did 2,000 years ago. We need to understand that without the infilling of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to understand the book of Revelation. Unfortunately, because many people, it appears, and especially in scholarship, that aren't always necessarily filled with the Holy Spirit, they miss it. They miss what God's really trying to show us here. When I read the book of Revelation, one of the things that comes to mind is, man, Joel was right. <laughs> right? I mean, th this is a living, breathing book. It's not the past. I can go right to Joel that's written, you know, uh, 2,500 years ago and go, oh my gosh, he was right. What the Lord gave him to speak was exactly right. So that means that, that tells us that the scriptures, all of it from Genesis to Revelation, are alive and breathing, and Revelation fits right into that. So many people are intimidated by the book of Revelation because of all the trial and tribulation and the struggles, it's one of the reasons that, people, that many of the uh, scholars determined that the book of Revelation, most of it's already passed. Why? Because we don't want to struggle, right? The struggles spoken about in Revelation are our struggles. They're not just somebody else's. They were 2,000 years ago. It's never stopped. It continues today. And it will be into the present until Yeshua returns. It's, it's, a, it's a living dynamic. If you remember from last week, I was teaching about how most of like the historical interpretation says this is all done with. Well, that would be very deceiving because the devil can use that against us. 
then we can say, well, if you think you're being punished, it's because you're not a believer. It's ridiculous. The believers, the faithful, are the ones that are struggling. We tend to think sometimes those that aren't faithful and that seem to cheat the system, they're doing really well. They're successful. They're powerful. They have money. They have influence. And we tend to look up to them instead of looking up to those that have continued to suffer for generations. The worldview is different than God's worldview. And we need to see Revelation that way because we need to understand it's, it's our struggle too. It isn't just our ancestors' struggle or a struggle that's going to happen in the, in, in the future or that, that the church is going to be raptured out and there won't be a struggle. Nowhere is that supported in Scripture. We can see fulfillment and parallels such as uh, Babylon being taken down to Revelation. Uh, and what else? The dysphoria of Israel and of course the persecution of the saints, Jew and indeed a Gentile. We can see it now. There are parallels to the his- history of Babylon falling, but we know that the spirit of Babylon, the horror of Babylon is part of, this, of the prophetic within the book of Revelation. So what is that? Is it Babylon as we knew it 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago? Well, no, not in the sense of the natural, but within the spirit of Babylon, it's exactly the same. But the revelation is not, it's not about the past as much as it's about the return of Yeshua. All, for me, all the books of the Bible, for the, with maybe a couple of exceptions, are talking about Yeshua and the prophetic of Him coming and what the condition of the world will be, what He's what he's going to save us from. But we can't use, one of the things we can't do going totally the other side, is we can't use the book of Revelation as a checklist. That would be like taking the Tanakh, the, the 613 commandments for sake of count, and checking them off as you do them. You can't look at the book of Revelation as we had a blood moon. Got it. We had an earthquake. Got it. Got a flood. Oh, we got that. Wait, you can't do that. And that's what's happening. That is what is happening. That is the popular eschatological stuff going on today. A checklist. Revelation is not written as a checklist to be checked off. It gives us a view of the things that are are to come or have come or are coming or will come. We, we We need to see ourselves in the book of Revelation just like I teach that we need to see ourselves in the Exodus. And we need to see ourselves that the prophets are speaking to us. Because if we don't, we're going to miss it. If we say it's for another age, if we, if we think like the traditional dispensationalists that break it all up, you, there's no accountability for it. Oh, we missed it all. We're in a good time. Not only, we're in the perfect time. Not only is it not relevant to us, but we're going to get raptured out too. So we can't use Revelation as a checklist as it's often done regarding measuring obedience, right? Like Torah. I'm obedient because I'm checking off the list of 613 commandments of things that I did. I did that. I we can't treat either one of these things as a bucket list. Does anybody here have a bucket list? Things they've written down they want to accomplish and get it done? All right. Well, our relationship with God, don't put that in the bucket. That would not be good. <laughs> with that being said, why are there seven churches mentioned? This is some of the most misunderstood interpret- interpolations, I would say, as there is. Well, they're mentioned because they, do, they give us context to the revelation of as John was the head of these as their apostles. He was a shiliach to these churches in Asia Minor and what is now Turkey as well, which is interesting with today's circumstances. It says in Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, I came to be in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, 
write down what you see on a scroll and send it to the seven messianic communities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So is what being written down, and if it's, if it's only rel- if we decide that it's only relevant for the seven churches 2,000 years ago, then why do we need to bother to read the book of Revelation, and why was it in- included in the canon? That should give you a pause, a moment to think. If it's irrelevant to us, if these were things that were just spoken to seven churches, or seven church ages, then how do we fit ourselves in the context of that? That's where the historical perception very popular because I don't have to deal with it. I'm kind of simplifying. I don't have to deal with this. It's already done. We're not that. I'm not this. And I would have to admit in my walk over the years, I have misunderstood how I should relate to these churches or church ages, right? A-A-S-A, A-K-A, church ages. Because these were real churches. And these were real messianic communities and they had real issues and that God was discussing with them or was prophesying what he thought was good and what he thought was not good. It is not correct. The Messianic community as a whole can and must engage each of the seven messages as we can find ourselves in all of them to different degrees. I have come, I think, from studying to understand my relationship to these church, these Messianic communities or these church ages a little differently. Years ago, I just related to it as these were church ages and that we could we could see where the church has, has been right or wrong in those ages. And I think we missed the boat. I know we missed the boat because the Holy Spirit's telling me that's not enough. We need to understand what He's trying to show us here. So the reason is that, the reason that is, it's important that we understand how we relate to it and these seven uh, messianic communities, right? The reason it's important is that the church, the dispensationalists, see themselves as the Philadelphia church. So dispensationalists, Classic dispensationalists, usually most of the Protestant church, they, they see the church of Philadelphia as the good one. Well, we're the good one. As opposed to the troublesome ones. Some church theologies try to fit themselves within a particular church age or a name of a particular messianic community, kind of depending where they're at and what God was pleased with and not pleased with. And that isn't what the Lord has for us. He's trying, I believe, if we look at all all these things that, that John has given to say to these uh, uh, messianic communities that he oversees is that he's got issues with every one of them. Yet there's things that he likes about them. That sure sounds like us. <laughs> I, I just can't get away from the fact that it just sounds like us. We all have moments where we go, or we're kicking it with the Lord, and then something happens. And we go, oh, not so much. At least if we're honest with ourselves. We tend to not be that honest sometimes. A majority, a majority of the holy host, the church points fingers at the unacceptable ones. A lot of these, the, uh, the doctrines that I was teaching the last week, giving you an overall picture of, there's a tendency that we will point at all the, the, the church communities that we don't agree with. That's what we do. We may not call it Sardis or anything else like that, but we'll point at different de- denominations and go, wow, look. They're the troubled ones. Now we go to with another scripture. It's amazing the scriptures we read because I, when I wrote these messages, wrote this particular message weeks and weeks ago, I wasn't aware of the scriptures, but the scriptures today that we read, especially in, in the apostolic writings, connect with all these things. Right? Take, take the, the, the plank out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of somebody else's eye. 
This is a perfect relationship to what it's talking about here when we go, well, we're a lot better than that community, right? It's the same thing. It's a plank in your eye. And we feel that we don't see the plank, so we feel we have a right to take the splinter out of our brother's eye when we're not even willing to deal with the things that we, the mishigas that we got going on in our own eye, right? And that whomever sees themselves as the Philadelphia community are sure they are not the lukewarm ones. The majority of church dispensationalism thinks and believes that the church will be raptured out before, before that you know that before the you know what hits the van, right? That dispensation, that understanding is that that there's a lot of problems, but we're better than that, and we're getting out of here before the judgment comes. Well, first of all, there was no totally good messianic community, was there? Some were worse than others, but none of them were exempt. First of all. If you are, believe that you're part of, you're, you, you fall into a particular uh, description like the Church of Philadelphia and you think you're better than the others, we already have a problem there. What would that be? Pride. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're pretty much better than the rest of you six. We don't fit any of those. We're, we're part of the Church of Philadelphia. We're good. Well, you have a boasting problem at the very least. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, it says, I know what you are doing. You are either cold nor hot, how I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I've quoted the Scriptures many times, and I think we need to, it, 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 it'll be more powerful if we put it in the context of what's going on here. And he's really talking about more than just one of the Messianic communities. He can find in all those communities some that are lukewarm or hot for the wrong things or whatever, or cold. You know, everybody says, well, no, it's just to the one. And no, because that can't be true. Because if you're doing your own thing, then you're hot for the wrong reasons. And if you're doing nothing, then you're cold anyway. It's interesting. The Lord says it's better to be hot for him or cold for him, but not lukewarm. What's lukewarm? One example of lukewarm is saying you're really, you know, you're really invested in the Lord and you haven't read the Bible for two years. You're lying to yourself. And I would consider calling that lukewarm, you probably consider yourself hot, but you're lukewarm, and that's worse. I didn't write it. I'm just explaining it. That alone should give us pause, right? It should give us pause uh, to accepting the idea that the, Lo- the Laodicean body can represent the Messianic community before Yeshua comes. Why? Where is the unity in love? We can't represent a, a proper body or expression of, of Yeshua without love. And I'm talking about agape love. We, we can't express it correctly. That's that, I'm better than the other, right? I'm, 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 we're, I'm better than you. I'm more religious. I have more knowledge. I'm more obedient. And so that brings us, so why do those things happen? Well, one of the parts is, uh, the prim, one of the primary points of Revelation in, in particular, but specifically to all of Scripture, is to prepare us for spiritual warfare. There's a lot of spiritual warfare before the book is given. Spiritual warfare is there all the time. Um, I would say that Adam and Eve's poor choices is spiritual warfare. We all are in a spiritual battle. We all have to face spiritual warfare. Some of us ignore it, and we, we apply different things to it. Oh, bad luck, bad karma, all those things. Well, the devil is no respecter of persons, just as the Messiah Yeshua, the Lord, is no respecter of persons. Spiritual warfare is something that comes to all of us, even those 
that we're really struggling to, to, to walk with the Lord. We may even be called friend by the Lord, but the reality is we still have spiritual warfare that is looking to take us out. Why? Because it's a battle of powers and principalities, not flesh and blood. Nobody is exempt from it. Even Yeshua was not exempt from spiritual warfare, was He? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And what happens in all the whole 40 days? Spiritual warfare. Just be, you know, some people, people say, oh, if you're dogged by the devil, then, then there's something wrong with you. Well, that's what Job's friend said to him. You must have done something wrong because you're getting cracked. The devil asking for permission is spiritual warfare. We need, to, we, we, we need to be able to have spiritual eyes for this. You know, we, we live in much, much of the church body which does not acknowledge spiritual warfare in a real sense. We'll read it, but there's very little that's done about it. Partly because people don't really believe it. They deny it. And you know what? The devil loves that, doesn't he? The more we deny the truth, the easier job he has to mess us up. So the book of Revelation has a great deal to do with spiritual warfare. Preparing us for spiritual warfare for all ages. For the ages that have passed, for the ages that we live in, and for the future ages to come. But the message is delivered to each of the seven church communities was, was to, in, to them was in real time. They, were, they got the benefit of having the message in the real time. John's responsible for these seven communities, and, and the Lord speaks to him, Yeshua speaks to him, so that he could deliver the message to, the, to all seven messianic communities. But through John delivering that to the seven messianic communities, he's, already, he's also delivering it to us, to every generation that comes after those because we can still see it's not resolved. We're in as much spiritual warfare now as they were then. Maybe more. I mean, we, we kind of tend to see things worse, right? When we're in it, we tend to see it worse. I, I don't know how we really look at it. It seems to me that Sodom and Gomorrah was pretty bad. The, the challenge is, if you believe in a doctrine that, that the Word is in the truth, then there are many so-called believers walking around. They're not sure that Sodom and Gomorrah even happened. Let me tell you, there is archaeological proof they did. Nothing still grows there. It's dark and black and, and whatever, you know, burnt. So we have, to, we have to start there, right? We have to start to when it's delivered. And then we can look for possible parallels in our time. Not possible. I say that tongue-in-cheek because there are many parallels. Not the possible parallels there are in our time or other times. So the question is, if nothing's really changed, is there hope for us? That's where when we're weak in our faith, we... We doubt the Lord. We're doubting Thomas's, right? We're, we're not, we don't see him. We haven't seen him. We're not sure. We start doubting. Is there hope for us? If nothing has changed in 2,000 years, at least from how the condition of man, is there hope for us? Well, I think at least those that are solid in Messiah, there's more than hope. There's hopefulness. In fact, there's victory. So, of course, the book of Revelation speaks to that, and obviously we'll get there and cover that in more depth at some other time. Um, I'm really addressing those that may not be sure if there's hope. Maybe even some of us here aren't sure in our private prayer closet. Is the world condition more than we can overcome? Well, it's more than we can overcome, but it's not more than, than the Lord can overcome. It's not about us. It's about Him. And He not only reveals the condition of man in the book of Revelation, but He reveals who He is and what He's going to do, doesn't He? If, we, if the Lord was going to leave it up to us, well, we might as well call it an early day and go have Oneg. Because we're not going to change it in ourselves. But encouragement in the book of Revelation comes quickly in Revelation chapter 1. I'm 
moving around a little, in verses 12 and 13, it says, I turned around to see who was speaking to me, and when I had turned, I saw seven gold menorahs, and among the menorahs was someone like a son of man, wearing a robe down to his feet and a gold band around his chest. So why is that encouraging? Well, we're looking at Mashiach, aren't we? He is. That's what he sees. So what are we talking about? Well, the Ruach is the oil in the lights of the menorahs. So the Lord is reminding us of he's using what things that are relatable to Israel, the menorah, because that is represents the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? If you didn't know that, that's what it does. It represents the Holy Spirit. So he's encouraging us, right? And how many so and how many are and how many are there, right? So we have the menorahs, Yeshua is being represented, he's showing himself. So the menorahs represent seven. What does seven represent? Completion. Not just completion to the world, it's the Lord's number for completion. He could have done four menorahs. He could have done twelve. But he did seven. Why? Because that's relevant. Who created the menorah in the temple? Who? Well, the Lord gave the word, right? He gave the instructions to the artisans, and, and Moshe put upon them some of his, right, his anointing, so they were able to build the menorah. That is a Holy Spirit-driven creation. He didn't use the Star of David. There's no Star of David in the book of Revelation. There's no cross in the book of Revelation either. No, but the menorah. So, first of all, John would relate to that. He would know what that means. The world now, unless you're from a Hebraic background and understanding, too, you're not going to really understand what the menorahs mean. Um, the Ruach is the oil that lights the lamps and each messi- with each Messianic community having one. We find that in verse 20. With seven being the number of perfection and completeness, we can see the Ruach shines from all of these communities, even with the ones that are in trouble. That's encouraging, isn't it? Each community has a menorah, and that means that God's there, and that, that they're in some kind of relationship with the Lord. For the Lord is the difference in Yeshua. We are the communities that can be restored. So there's a parallel for us. In these seven communities with the menorahs, the Lord is telling them through these menorahs that you're, you're, still, you're still in a place where you can find the final redemption. That not everything is bad. The menorahs are lit. They're not blown out. He's reminding us and them that there is victory and it will come in the last days, but they've got issues which need to be addressed. So this, of course, is directly related to shaping up or suffering being vomited out, which we find in chapter 3, verse 16 of Revelation. There's hope. The Lord's in the midst of it, but you've got to get right. Lukewarm isn't going to cut it. Of course, we know cold doesn't cut it, but lukewarm isn't. And clearly, most of the seven communities had a ton of lukewarm people in it. It's no difference today, my brothers and sisters. If we're just sitting here in a, in a, in a, in a sanctuary and we're biding our time or just kind of go through the motions, we are also lukewarm. We, the devil has created this environment within the, the believing community or semi-believing uh, community where we think if we do good, good things on a human standard, or we follow religious traditions or, or cultures or whatever within all the different churches that we're doing a good job. And it's a lie. It's just not true. The Lord wants us to take responsibility and accountability for how we, we engage the Lord. Don't, you can't live through somebody else's relationship. You can't live through my relationship with the Lord. You don't want to. i got my own issues. 
But we have to stand on our own. And it's one of the things I've tried to drive into the youth that, that they have to take accountability for their own lives. Because our youth, are most of them are, are, are just cold and some may be lukewarm and neither one of those are going to benefit them. But we have a culture that, that says the opposite. So how do we understand the seven angels that Yochanan John write, writes about? Well, in context, we should always look at context, it appears most likely that these are the men of the leaders of the respective communities. Now, that's not how usually it's taught, but I believe that is the truth, and I'm going to try and, and uh, support that with you. Um, of the respective communities, people who can receive the message and pass it on. Angels in the Hebrew is also messenger. And so we need to look at context to understand what's going on. Are they angels or are they messengers? And I believe it appears that they're messengers and they're human, not necessarily angels. But that people of the community, these men, these leaders of renown that lead their communities, that they've been given insight and they receive the message that Yochanan is given and that they were carried on into the communities, which actually makes more sense. It's much harder to say these are angelic beings in the context. And of course, always ask the question, well, why is that true? It is part of the preparation of the testing coming to all men, not angels. Yeshua is looking for zealous, loyal partners. Men. Zealous, loyal partners. The, the, the revelation is coming from Yeshua. He doesn't need angels to pass it on. He's looking for men, just as the prophets of old were used. There are a few exceptions where angels actually pass it on, but the lion's share of the messages that are passed on are through humans, the prophets. And I don't re- have any reason to believe that it should be any different than that. So what's the bottom line? If we can turn back to the Lord, we can qualify as the glorious bride that it talks about, right? How do we know this warning, right? How do we know? It is seated in the first messianic community, the letter to Ephesus. But I have this against you. You have lost the love you had at first. Therefore, remember where you were before you fell and, turn and, and, and then turn from your sin and do what you used to do before. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your menorah from its place if you don't turn from your sin. Revelation chapter 2, verses 4-5. through five. So what does this mean? That the first, so what it means is, what's the first, their first love? Their first passion is Yeshua, and they've trampled on Him. You've got to get restored in the right order. So this, this church, this messianic community, needs to get back on track because they have walked away in many ways from the Lord. Their first passion and our first passion needs to be Yeshua. How many times have believers come in and we're on fire and then we kind of fall into complacency either because we stop coming, being in a viable community or we leave the community or the community itself is old and archaic and in the wrong direction. How, many, how often does that happen? The Lord wants us to return to our first love who is Yeshua. And He wants us to return with the passion that we had when we first came to know Him. It will be a little different from, for everybody, I believe. I know it is for me. When I first said yes, my first response after the, the act was, what the heck did I do? I didn't have this great euphoria. I had a, a bit of euphoria. And then when, when, when the flesh gets in the way, it says, oh, whoa, slow down. Slow down. And how did it try to make me slow down? It brought up guilt, which it said, because now I'm going to tell, I have to tell my parents. Guilt, right? Well, you got to tell them. You got to tell them what you did. Thank God the Holy Spirit says, just wait. He's so smart. We need, we need to realize that wh- where does the Holy Spirit dwell? What does that make us? makes us a menorah. So 
what it's telling us here, will the Lord come and take our menorah? He's speaking to all of us, believers, past, present, and future. I will come and take your menorah, which means I will take my Holy Spirit. You know, the, 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 the advanced part of Revelation, and we will get into those chapters as we do this, but those, those later chapters are meaningless without understanding who we are in our relationship with the Lord in the first few chapters because they set the stage for understanding everything else. There's a parallel here to the book of Exodus, in particular when, when uh, Moses leaves after he, he, you know, he murders the, um, you know, the Egyptian and he runs and he's in hiding in Midian, right? And then the Lord calls on him to get him in the right place. Moses had a choice. He could either, he made up enough excuses, but the Lord wouldn't take any. He eventually says, okay, right? But the same question is to us. Are we willing to lay it down and get ready? And the book of Revelation is reminding us of that, that do you want to keep your menorah or do you want to lose your menorah? The choice is ours. In order to get right with the Lord, we need to turn ourselves around with the help, of course, of the Holy Spirit. Can't do it without that. Yeshua is asking us to examine ourselves. This is what he was asking. This what he was asking of Laodicea and all of Ephesus and all of them. He's saying, self-examine yourselves and where are you at? Are you hot? Are you cold? Are you lukewarm? Do you want to keep your menorah? My menorah. Yeshua is asking us to examine ourselves so we so that we can qualify as the glorious bride. We cannot just come as we were before, or how we have backslidden. The Lord gives us much grace so that we can be restored in a right relationship with Him. And this is what He's telling the, the seven messianic communities. But we're in, in action indeed. We are the seven communities. We can find in each, each of those communities things that are still wrong about us or our community. You know, the Lord, it's interesting, He doesn't single people out. He singles out the seven communities. And He says, you're all culpable. You can't blame it on one person. In Egypt, they lit fires to priests that didn't work out, right? You know what? We're bad, but we're going to blame it on you. No, the Lord says you go with the community. As the community goes, you go. I don't mean the you go, Russian car. That thing was horrible. <laughs> One of the key points in the early chapters, particularly in chapter 2, is not just hearing, but being transformed or even re-transformed into the reflection of our Messiah. So let me read from Revelation chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Okay, Lord. Look, the adversary is going to have some of you thrown into prison in order to put you to the test. And you will face an ordeal for 10 days, which isn't, I don't believe it's literally 10 days, but 10 seasons. Remain faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your crown. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the messianic communities. He who wins the victory will not be hurt at all by the second death. We'll get into second death much later. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Why is it that especially in, 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 in more modern Christian thought, ideas, let's get out from underneath everything. We have no obligations. That is not the heart of the text of the book of Revelation. It's saying be prepared. It's coming. It doesn't say don't worry, you're getting out. Not that way. We, the eternal reward is how we get out. There's no promise here of missing, of missing anything. He's saying, don't be afraid for what you're about to suffer. Well, he's not just talking to the church communities. Again, he's talking to us. Look, the adversary is going to have some of you thrown in prison. The adversary is still active. Remain faithful even to the point of death. People don't know how to be faithful to the point of death that they think they're going to be raptured out. Did you hear me? 
There is no test of faith to the point of death if you're going to skip all the bad parts or what we perceive as bad parts. The Lord just says it's testing. You just say, this is my will. This is what's going to happen. If you have faith in me, don't worry. The victory that he's talking about here is the victory that spans all generations, past, present, and future. It's faith in the midst of chaos. That's the true test of faith. Can you have faith in a living God that you haven't seen in the, in, in the midst of the chaos that we reside in? It makes the difference between being hot for God, lukewarm for God, or cold for God. Those that are faithful in the chaos probably are in the category of zealous for the Lord. Lukewarm might be, yeah, you know what, I, whatever comes, but you know, whoever wins, I'm with them. The devil gets a lot of people that way. Why? Because he lies to them about the riches of the world and what he can give them. And we buy into that, some of us. Yet a very an interesting point and situation is found in the Messianic community of Smyrna. It says the synagogue of Satan. What is that all about? Is it relevant today? I believe it is. Listen, I, we need, I want you to really grasp onto this one. It says the church of Satan is in the midst of the Messianic community. Nothing's changed. We still battle the evil one, don't we? We, we, you know, we, are, we are not yet a pure spotless bride in the sense that the devil still is here and he works in the midst. I mean, this is Yeshua's own words. This is what he sends down, right? He says, the synagogue of Satan. What is that all about? And is it relevant? It's speaking about Gentiles trying to convince people they are Jews. Here's an example. The adversary tries to divide, not bring together. So we have a messianic community in, in, in the last 50, 60 years. And now one of the division points is trying those that believe in Hebrew roots that try to teach Gentiles to be Jews. That's wrong. It's not what I teach her. But that is of the adversary. Why? Not the truth. There's people out there trying to teach people, Gentiles, how to be good Jews. There are no good Jews. Only in Messiah are we good. And it's not relevant whether we're Jewish or Gentile anyway. So why should we be training people to be Jewish? I'm not talking about keeping the commandments. I'm talking about just trying to do all the things that Orthodox Jews do and all those kinds of things. And, and you know, there's, you know, within the Hebrew Roots movement, more people are more focused on how they can look more Jewish than they are pleasing God. Because they've been taught this pleases God. Looking like a Hasidic Jew does not please God. There are probably, <laughs> there are probably right, accredited righteous Hasidic Jews but not because of the clothes they wear, how they wear their hair, or how they do stuff, or the weird things that they do. It just that doesn't count. Look, the Lord can move through the minutia. None of us are perfect. We can screw up stuff all the time. But the Lord's looking for our heart, and He can, he can pick out the good stuff, right? But our, our obligation is to learn. Our obligation is to lay those things down. And the book of Revelation is actually speaking to this. It's not so foreign when we start breaking it down. To the angel of the messianic community in Smyrna, write, here is the message from the first and the last who died and came alive again. Of course, talking about Yeshua speaking directly to the messianic community. I know how you are suffering and how poor you are, though in fact you are rich, right? So here's a persecuted community. They're really poor. It doesn't give the details exactly what that is. He says, but the poorer you are, the richer you are. So don't worry about that. Don't be focused on that. A lot of we get focused... God loves me more if He gives me more money. No, it wouldn't hurt to have a little more, but that's not what God focuses on, right? When we are poor, we are rich if we are in the Messiah. And I know the insults of those who call themselves Jews but aren't. Interesting, isn't it? 
So the problem we have today goes back 2,000 years. We got somebody, somebody's trying to teach Gentiles just how to be Jewish. It's not right. We, but don't confuse it with walking in the mitzvot, the commandments. He's not coming against commandment obedience. He's coming against all the mishigas of men. Craziness of men, right? On the contrary, they are a synagogue of the adversary. That's from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And so this is still relevant today, and, and it has divided the communities. It's hard to even call ourselves messianic believers anymore. What does it mean? It's been so trampled on and distorted. It's, if you go, I'm a messianic believer, that, that could tell somebody 50 different things. Like saying I'm a Christian. Or even if I'm a Jewish. What does that mean? It brings division. But what can we take from the conversation so far? All the things we've talked about today. The one thing that kind of brings it all together in the way the Lord is addressing the issues and talking about what's going on in the Messianic communities is one thing is in common with all of them. And that is the Lord's agape love for them. It's about love. It's about the Lord's love. Or it's about the lack of love that the community has for the Lord because they've wandered away. They, they have wandered away. The Lord is looking for the faithful and obedient. And it's paramount for, for us to have unity. In unity with that is our testimony of love. When we walk with the Lord, that's our testimony of love to Him and others. It's not our version of love that counts. It's His version. And we totally get confused all the time. We, we have a hard time with agape love. His agape love is unconditional and it doesn't change. And, and, and it always feels good. Though agape love isn't, isn't necessarily mushy. Agape love is when the Lord disciplines us and says you're off track. He's showing agape love by telling them what's wrong with them. And He does it to us today as well. And we don't like it. The flesh doesn't like it. In James 1 verse 12, how blessed is the man who perseveres through temptation for after he has passed the test, he will receive as his crown the life which God has promised to those who love him. Agape love him. But he's also seeing if we agape love other people. Now we don't have to go around saying, I agape love you. I agape love you. It's a little weird. comes off strange. But that we can know in our hearts and as believers, we can understand if we're loving one another that that's agape love. I agape love you. This doesn't ring right, does it? From 1 Corinthians 13, 2 and 3, I may have the gift of prophecy, I may fathom all mysteries, know all things, have all faith, enough to move mountains, but if I lack love, which is agape love, I am nothing. I may give away everything that I own, and I might even hand over my body to be burned, but if I lack love, agape love, I gain nothing. And there's where some of us fall down. We fall down because we don't understand what agape love is. I may give away everything that I own. I may hand over everything. It's not the outside. It's what's on the inside. When we give things away, when we help people, is it because we love them or is it because we're earning something? I'm good because look what I do. I do this, I do this, and I do this, and I do this. The reason we should do anything is through agape love. We don't have to tell people what we're doing or why we're doing it or any of those things. One of the reasons we don't, we don't, you know, we don't have an altar call for tithes and offerings to pass stuff around because it's none of anybody's business. What we give as tithes and offerings is unto the Lord because we love Him. And in turn, we love each other and that's why we tithe and offering because that money is used to the benefit of all, sometimes more to less, whoever has less has more. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't. Yeshua is looking for a body that loves Him and indeed 
our fellow family members. His desire is unity in Him and that each of us will be ready. That we would be ready. So that means hot, zealous for God, not lukewarm, not cold, but that we would be ready, ready for what is on the horizon in these first few chapters of Revelation are trying to prepare those seven communities as He is trying to prepare us. Have an amen. So next week, we're going to continue the journey of the heart of the Lord in Revelation. Same bat time, same bat station. Stay tuned to Solace Radio. We pray you're blessed by our new channel. As always, hit the like button, share the program, and subscribe. And don't forget to comment or let us know how the teaching has touched you. Till we meet again, peace. Talk radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Ponte Vista, Colorado.